the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. So we were on our fourth Martin Scorsese movie for this podcast. Uh, We did Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino. And this is a movie that you and I have been talking about doing for a while. We both really love this underrated Martin Scorsese movie, After Hours. And we've been kind of holding off because there really wasn't, there was a lot of information out there on the movie, but we like to have as much as possible. And mm-hmm. uh, there had been this rumor that Criterion was going to do, uh, not more than the rumor, like I feel like it was like sort of semi-announced that they were going to, they started working on After Hours and just like years went by and never yeah. happened. And finally they released them as soon as I saw that announcement that criterion was releasing after hours i was like we gotta we're doing it we gotta do it we've got some you know they're putting some special features on there and so we'll start tracking down some information on the movie and this has been a wild ride because this is definitely a martin scorsese movie i've always appreciated but probably one that i hadn't seen in a good while man what a great revisit it's been to sit down and sit with this movie and it's such a uh interesting movie in Scorsese's career and really to me like you know I feel like you've gotten the more extreme Scorsese as he's gotten older and it's funny to hear him talk about this movie and saying you know I was in my 40s and I was trying to be a younger filmmaker you know try to muster that energy that I had for making you know my direction and uh, I feel like he's never lost it. And there's so many things in After Hours that maybe it would have taken Scorsese a while to get to, but that have influenced him in films to follow. What I love in particular about Scorsese is that you never expect him to have such a sense of humor. And in like all my Bill Murray research and and finding out that, you know, they know each other and they're connected through other people and then finding out that Scorsese's you know, a huge SCTV fan, you know, back in the day. Like, the guy has a brilliant sense of humor. And when I first saw The King of Comedy, I adore that film. And um, I did it for a pick of the week. I think it was in Taxi Driver. That was certainly um, a different tone of a dark comedy than After Hours. But Scorsese's humor is so underrated. And I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that the man needs to do more comedies or anything like that. But his style of humor is something that I'm really attracted to. As you know, every year I show Goodfellas. uh mm-hmm on the weekend of my birthday and um and there's so much funny stuff in that yeah i mean it, every time i get a group together to watch that movie people are laughing through the whole thing yeah. you forget how much humor scorsese injects into that movie and here this movie's so dark it's it's wild it's like i would love to see after hours with a group because dark humor sometimes when you're watching it alone it doesn't always hit the same way like depending on what kind of mood Mm -hmm. I'm in and I certainly the first watch that I did of After Hours you know there's so much happening so quickly that sometimes I'm like wait is this supposed to be funny because it's something happens and it's bizarre and it's kind of dark but you don't but then it kind of plays out in the way the characters are reacting to you're like no this is supposed to be played for humor um, and it is always a fine line. We've talked about it many times on this podcast of comedy, dark comedies that like failed with audiences because, you know, I mean, it's just kind of misunderstood. And it's like, wait, I'm not laughing at this because it's so dark. But 
you missed the point of it. You yeah. Know? Well, I can't wait to get into After Hours, the beginning, how this movie came to be. There's a little bit of a controversy we'll get to a little bit later, but we'll go into um, how this movie basically saved Scorsese's career in a lot of ways. And we'll talk a little bit about where Scorsese was in his career in the battle that he had between trying to get another movie financed and doing a movie like Run and Gun like he did with After Hours. Uh, as well as, you know, talking about the cast. And with this movie, particularly, some of the cast had an involvement in actually getting the movie off the ground and running, which is uh, something you see more so now, you know, where actors are also the producer and their name kind of gets things going. But this was an actor who didn't really have a name, but was kind of like running the sidelines as producer and like really going for it, trying to get a movie made that he could be the star of. And that's Griffin Dunn. There's also a lot of reoccurring themes that happen in this film. After Hours is very much, you know, from point A to point B to point C. Everything is leading from one thing to another, and it just keeps escalating and escalating. But it's always kind of recirculating back to the same themes throughout the movie. So I I feel like, at least I hope, we hit on a lot of examples from this movie because it's so... Like when you said bizarre earlier, I mean, it is. There's so many things that happen, like specifically with Rosanna Arquette's character, that I have to rewind and go, wait, what did she say? Is that like little nuggets of curious either dialogue or things that you see in the background that you're never going to get an explanation to? And that's brilliant. I love that. that. This movie, you can just keep picking at it and picking at it and see something new every time. In this movie, I probably the last time I watched this before we did it for this episode was when I was in college. And seeing the movie that takes place uh, like its title, After Hours, where like the night is starting to kick off at yeah. like 1130 or at midnight. I mean, I had nights where like, oh, we're just, I mean, you don't even leave your house till 1030. You know, it's just like, it's too early to go out. But yeah. like in my 40s, it's like I'm usually in bed by the time Griffin Dunn's evening starts. So (laughs) there is a little bit more of a uh, wonderment about this movie now because it's like, oh, well, I totally get the deliriousness of if I was, you know, with some people and then someone's inviting me to do something and it's like past midnight and then it stretches out throughout the night. I haven't had a night like that in 15, 20 years. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I'm kind of boring, but I, I wouldn't want a night like Griffin Dunn has, you know? No. Um, but it is exciting to, as an audience member, to watch it in the safety of my couch. Someone uh, basically get, have like this like after hours adventure. And I think that's why this movie is always going to have some type of long lasting appeal is that whether or not, you know, no matter what age you are, there's always something within us that has a little bit of FOMO or thinks, oh, it would be fun if I did that, but I just don't feel like it. Or that moment that you do take a chance and you're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm doing this. I'm going out at 1130. Like Griffin Dunn's night starts uh, at 1130 and, you know, he's got to go 45 minutes somewhere else. And I'm just thinking, man, that's like quarter after midnight. Ugh, that's where your night's starting. But you know what? The thing about it is that sometimes that happens. And, you know, that did happen to me, I think, in my 20s. I don't want to mess with that anymore because the anxiety that after hours provokes within me um, is what I'm always going to assume is going to happen. So I'm just, you know, I'm not going to. But like you said, I'm always going to want to sit down and watch this movie from the comfort of my own house and watch Griffin Dunn deal with it. 
And you bring up anxiety and that's something that we talk about anxiety all the time and how people have it and how they're dealing with it and there's medication for it. It's now used more as as a comedy tool. But when this movie came out, it's really dialed up so tight. And I don't think a lot of movies were working within that realm of like, this is anxiety comedy. And I don't think that style of comedy for After Hours was appreciated as much when the movie was first released. But we'll have more After Hours talk soon. For our picks of the week, Mm -hmm. I was was really tough because I was trying to... Think of a movie that all took place in one night, and I was thinking of movies like Go, and I, I almost went with that one, but I, I kept coming back to the Scorsese movie that is also, I think, as underseen as After Hours, and that's Bringing Out the Dead. And that movie also has this realm of like, you are just, as an audience member, are put through the point of view of the main character. Uh, played by Nicolas Cage, and it's it's almost too much. Just the idea of like trying to be a EMT ambulance driver in New York City on a busy night just seems insane. I don't know. I thought it was a good pick, so that was what I ended up landing on. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, what did you pick for this week? Well, I tried to stay with the idea of a uh, adventure that you're not really planning for type of thing. So I went with a Jonathan Demme movie that stars Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels called Something Wild. It's a great pick. A little and bit a really, lighter fare than After Hours. Really awesome early role with Ray Liotta. Yes. Yeah. Of course, always we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But uh, Lindsay, before we get into our first clip from After Hours. Can you give me, in your words, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Seems pretty simple. There's a lot going on, but I know you are always good at uh, condensing things and, you know, giving a clear picture of of what we're uh, in for. But not telling you everything, vaguing it up a little bit. Uh, After Hours is one man's anxiety dream come to life. Paul Hackett is a word processor, office guy, whose life seems like it's just passing him by. So when a stranger named Marcy strikes up a conversation then gives him her phone number, Paul can't wait to take the bait. Leaving the comforts of his Upper East Side New York apartment, Paul travels down to Soho to meet Marcy. And when his cab fare and what's left of his money blows out the cab window, this might have been the first sign that throwing caution to the wind might not have been in Paul's best interest tonight. What follows is a series of events, all one causal action leading to a reaction of the most nightmarish proportions, surrounded by the most colorful of characters, quite foreign to Paul. He's out of his comfort zone, broke, stranded, with Marcy becoming the catalyst for Paul's personal horror show. It almost makes sense that he becomes the focus of the entire Soho neighborhood hunting him down over a misunderstanding. Why is this happening to him? All he wanted was some human contact, maybe a brief romance, but by the end, Paul's just looking to survive the night. This is a journey of lust, fear, guilt, death, and ultimately acceptance. It's one dark comedy that speaks to the deepest of personal anxieties of almost anyone. That was a good job of really trying to sum up all the insanity that happens in this movie. But like you want to talk about the characters. Like the the supporting cast in this movie is just it's nuts. I mean, yeah. I just kept I just keep thinking about Catherine O'Hara. She but then there's Terry Gar. Like all of these yeah. people are just wonderful. And somehow everybody is dialing it up so much in this movie, kind of over the top, but like not going so far as to where they're stealing the thunder from yeah. uh, Griffin Dunn's character or his yeah. scene. Well, let's go to a clip from After Hours and then we'll come back. We'll get into how this movie started. Can I ask you something? I've wanted to ask you this all night. Who's Franklin? 
Franklin. Franklin is my husband. Really? Is that um, his loft then? He owns it, yes. Well, um, do you live with him? No, he's in Turkey. Look, I stayed with my husband for three days. I was very young when I got married. My husband was a movie freak. Actually, he was particularly obsessed with one movie. The Wizard of Oz. He talked about it constantly. I thought it was cute at first. On our wedding night, I was a virgin. When we made love, you've seen the film, haven't you? The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, I've seen it. Well, when we made love, whenever he, you know, when he came, he'd just scream out, surrender Dorothy. That's all, just surrender Dorothy. <laughs> wow. Oh, instead of moaning or saying, oh, God, or something normal like that. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty creepy. <laughs> and I, I told him I thought so, but he just, he just couldn't stop. He just, he just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. <laughs> he, he said he didn't even realize it was happening. <laughs> he just couldn't stop. So I just broke the whole thing off. Now, we're over 100 movies in with this podcast and just about every episode when we talk about these movies a lot of times the focus is on the director because the directors of a lot of these movies are are so singular and they shape the movies and make them their vision but specifically with movies like this after hours and so many kind of offbeat movies um it starts with a very unique script with unique characters and that script is so different that it can't be pigeonholed into a particular genre the character you know it goes and shifts in different ways where on paper you're like man this is so strange it's like i have no clue where this is going it's not adhering to any particular formula that we're familiar with this definitely was a script that jumped out to a lot of people and immediately to actors that wanted to say hey this is, I, we got to get this movie made. This, These are some great parts. There's a lot of playfulness in this movie. So let's get into a little bit about how the script came to be and how it got into the hands of Griffin Dunn. Well, Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson were creative partners and kind of out of work actors is, is what they like to say is why they became producers. So in order to try to get ahead, they were choosing to produce movies. And they had successfully done that with two films before, um, Chilly Scene of Winter and... And Baby, It's You, that was also starring Rosanna Arquette that would later be in After Hours. So as the story goes, Amy is at uh, a Sundance lab. I think this was in 81, 82. And this was maybe two or three years into Sundance existing and comes across a Serbian director named Dushan Makaveev. And they strike up a conversation and, and he says, hey, I've, uh, I've got this student here with me, uh, Joe Minion who, um, he's from New York, he's a New York writer, he's just out of college, and he's got this script, and it takes place in New York, you're from New York, I think you should read it. And so so she takes it with her, and immediately is, is captivated by it. She thinks it's 
really funny and appealed to her dark sensibilities. It also has a severe degree of paranoia. And she thought, shoot, I really need to tell Griffin about this. Maybe this could be our next project. I mean, it's coming from this kind of unknown writer. This is perfect. So she immediately calls Griffin and says, this is the movie I think we should do. I'm going to send it to you. And by the way, I think that you're the perfect person to play this anxiety-riddled lead role. And he gets the script, loves it, but is so anxious while reading it that he says he, he can't even sit down. He has to have it on the ground and he's turning the pages with his big toe. So Amy and Griffin decide that this is going to be their next project, and they option the screenplay from Minion, and now, now that they've got a hold of that, they try to sell it. And they're coming across the same two reactions from production companies that could finance the project. One, they think it's extremely funny, or they think that it's so anxiety-provoking that they think no one's going to sit down and watch this movie, that it's just too much. But while they didn't have any buyers, they thought... This script certainly leaves a mark, and we've got something extreme here, and we can make something happen. So with that in mind, and I mean, I I think every interview I've heard of these two, they say that they um, weren't really aware of the things that they should have been uh, wary of, or like weren't really impeded by anything stopping them or like we're going to make this project we're just going to move forward with it so they start even thinking about casting before any company has picked up the script and they also start thinking about a director at this stage in the game i don't know what the script if it started out being called lies or if it was called a night in soho either one the fact that it ends up being after hours which is what martin scorsese will retitle it is a much better title. Um, I think that it did start off as a night in Soho, but the title lies. We'll hold on to this nugget. It'll come into play much, much later in the story. And man, After Hours is such a cool title in A Night in Soho. When I was younger, anytime movies took some sort of title from like a location in New York that I didn't know anything about, in After Hours, it's just such a great, distinct title that really jumps out. Yeah, it really does. So Griffin and Amy are on the search for a director. I don't know if I would start out this way, but why not, you know, shoot shoot for the stars? Um, they start sending out the script, and the first person that they send it to is someone whom they both have had a little bit of involvement with, um, which is Martin Scorsese. Amy was in Mean Streets, and Griffin had met Scorsese when he went in for an audition that he was not the right age for, for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. It didn't pan out, but they evidently had a great, you know, conversation or whatever. So they both had a relationship somewhat with Scorsese. Now at this point, Scorsese wasn't known for comedy, but Amy felt like she knew his humor and that this script would appeal to his sensibilities. They knew that he was working on The Last Temptation of Christ. They weren't sure if he was going to respond, but you know, why not send it out and try? So both Griffin and Amy and Scorsese shared the same lawyer, Jay Julian, and he got the script to Scorsese. Like I said, Scorsese's got other things on his mind. He's working on The Last Temptation of Christ. He's been working in like nine months, I think, of pre-production of that film and is gearing up for the release of King of Comedy. That wasn't the only person that they thought of. Um, At the time, there was this little-known director who was an animator over at Disney And Amy happened to see a short called Vincent and was just blown away and thought, well, this guy, like, he understands darkness and and humor and heart. Um, This guy, Tim Burton, we really need to send this to him. So Amy thinks he would be perfect for this. Griffin agrees. They send him the script. And lo and behold, Burton ends up loving it. And within just a little while, they're like, okay, let's let's get to work on this. And there's a 
about a good month or two that they're in talks with him and start developing the project a little bit more. Now, obviously, we've talked about Scorsese already. It was not Tim Burton who directed After Hours, but there's a huge twist of fate that happens, and it involves Scorsese and the complete uh, devolving of The Last Temptation of Christ, which sent him into a professional and personal tailspin. Scorsese at this time, he had established himself as like a New York filmmaker with Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York. The thing that he had was all the respect of critics, all the respect of actors, but he hadn't really had any huge hits. Like the studios loved his vision, but they didn't appreciate the fact that he made these darker themed movies that didn't make them money at the box office. Now, his movies didn't bomb by any margin, but all his contemporaries, you know, Coppola, Spielberg, De Palma, all had hits on their hands. And Scorsese was kind of going a different route, you know, and he really wanted Last Temptation of Christ. That was his dream project, Um, but it was going to be really, really expensive. It was going to take a lot of time and ingenuity and money. And the studio was having doubts and they were kind of fighting with Scorsese about it because they didn't think that this movie was going to, one, make any money, and two, it was going to draw uh, quite a bit of controversy toward the studio, and which it did when he eventually did get it made. Well, there were some theaters that were already saying, just based on the story, we're not going to show it. And so he eventually just got totally frustrated and the, the project got sidelined. He would eventually make Last Temptation of Christ, but... He would make two movies in between there, After Hours and The Color of Money. So as things heated up with the studio and he knew that Last Temptation of Christ was, it it just wasn't going to happen right now in his career. He had to just step away from it and try to go back to his roots, try to do something that was a smaller film that he had more control over. And he went back to this After Hours script and loved it and was like, man, I'm down for this. This is awesome. Uh, Not really knowing at this point that uh, they had already selected a director in Tim Burton. And one thing that I didn't realize during when The Last Temptation kind of went down the tubes was that Scorsese, he didn't give up. Even when Paramount called him and said, okay, it's dead, we're, we're not going on, he took like another month and he cut the budget in half and was like, basically, like he looked pretty desperate, but this was his passion project. And they still were like, nope, dude, it's done. And that really just left him in a bad place. And I think returning to your roots of something that's low budget and a run and gun type of situation was what he had to do because he felt powerless and and helpless and also like the studio system was abandoning him in a way and he felt like he was ostracized so he returns to this idea of doing a smaller project almost like he had something to prove and not only did after hours appeal to him because it was a new york based movie areas of town that he knew something about the humor the dialogue he was surprised by so much in the script but also that he identified with the main character of Paul Hackett, that he was familiar with this idea of loneliness and desolation and living like he was in an anxiety dream himself. Like he's 40 and he feels like, okay, am I going to even be able to continue on filmmaking? Where, where am I? So I think the idea of, you know, returning to something that becomes a personal project, that it's not even something that you wrote, really... I mean, it made me kind of love Scorsese even more just because he really took After Hours to heart and also is some type of cathartic move um, in his career. 
Yeah, and I can't help but see the ties to the appeal of him looking at the script. Also, I've made a movie like Taxi Driver, which has some similar themes. I mean, uh, Paul Hackett is not socially inept like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, but he's still like there's this lost loneliness of of being surrounded by this gigantic, busy city with this like pulsing heartbeat and yet you can't find your place in it. And so you're searching for something that makes you feel like you belong, something that makes you feel alive, something that you can commit to. And Travis Bickle went the other route. Paul Hackett is committing to, I'm going to let this evening take me where it goes and see if I, I come out a better person on the other end or if I attain something that you know is desirable in some way. Scorsese was excited about it, and so he let the producers know, you know, I'm in, like, this is awesome. This other movie that I'm doing is it's dead. Unfortunately, they had already locked in with Tim Burton and Griffin Dunn felt really uh, anxious about it because he was like, man, we wanted Scorsese and now we got him, but we love Tim Burton. And so Griffin Dunn in an interview said that he was talking openly to Tim Burton and saying, oh man, the funny thing happened, you know, like, Scorsese like wants to do the project you know he had this other project and it died but you know it's that's the business and you know we're going with you and all this stuff and Tim Burton hurt immediately was like wait are you telling me Martin Scorsese wants to do the movie that like you guys hired me to do and they were like yeah yeah but it's all you know it's you know this happens and and Tim Burton was like yeah I, I'm not going to stand in the way of a project that Martin Scorsese wants to do Martin Scorsese was like so well respected at that point like someone's like hey i if he wants the job, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to mess with it. You know, he's going to make a great movie. So Tim Burton backed away and they gave the project to Martin Scorsese. Uh, I can't help but wonder what an after hours movie directed by young Tim Burton would be like. I mean, he certainly found his footing. I mean, the same year that after hours came out, Tim Burton made his debut with Pee Wee's Big Adventure and that movie has its own style and charisma, but I could totally see that being applied to an after hours type movie, especially those uh, fantasy type nightmare sequences in, in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I think it was producer Amy Robinson that said there were a lot more cobwebs that were involved in the visualizations and a lot more darkness too, that nothing that they were against, like it was just going to be a very, I mean, what we have come to know as Tim Burton after hours was going to look like that too. So back to Martin Scorsese. This is an interesting movie for his career because up until this point, he had almost exclusively worked with Mardik Martin or Paul Schrader or relying on his himself to do the screenplays. Very rarely had he taken a script from someone he didn't know and put his spin on it. And I think you see that in this movie. I think it feels different um, than other movies, especially the characters, because I feel like the characters in his previous films are so well defined by their moral compass. They're so well defined by their lust and desires and like the way that they view society. Whereas like the character Paul Hackett, you don't really know where he's coming from at first. He's kind of a mystery to you. And then he gets plunged into this mysterious evening and you just don't know where anybody's coming from. Like, it's just, uh, you just don't know if someone's going to like, turn around and stab them, you know, while they're smiling at him. It's just, there's no set of circumstances that seem familiar. Kind of an exciting movie for Scorsese to make because he had kind of 
rested on a lot of the same themes in his previous films. And this one sort of seemed like devoid of all that. It was like completely different. I think there's a lot of things you can assume about the character of Paul Hackett. Like he seems like a dependable, steadfast, good guy. Like he probably talks to his mom every week. Like he seems like a really, like a, like a sweetheart, easygoing, maybe a little bit of a doormat. Um, so when he's plunged into a world that is completely out of his comfort zone and just like everything seems to be coming at him. You make a good point about him being this even keeled character, you know, that I think as an audience, we, you know, again, we don't know too much about him, but he doesn't immediately give off this vibe of like, oh, this guy's weird or, oh, this guy's a dick or this guy's an angry character. Um, so you know, there's a more universal appeal to his um, person. So we jump along for the ride and we can kind of identify with him a little bit because, you know, most people are, will bend a little bit into a situation and like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I'm looking for some excitement. Nothing in this seems too crazy. You know, things seem very happenstance in the beginning. I could see how a regular person could be lured into a situation and how this begins. Granted, in 2023, it, things are all different because we are so untrusting of people. And if he looked this woman up and she didn't have a social media account, he'd be like, well, that's a red flag. You know, there's no red flags are popping up here. It's just one person talking to another person in the cafe, having this sort of like unique, you know, mutual interaction that's pleasant. And then, um, you know, it's a jumping off point. And I, I like movies that start that way because there isn't uh, the setup is so simple yet intriguing. It's easy to think that in 1985, you know, there weren't cell phones. There weren't all of these things that could have gotten Paul out of this jam. You know, he could have just called Uber if it was 2023. But we're always going to return to the idea of we've all had something that's the worst situation that could ever happen because we took a chance or, or did something that was out of the norm. And I'm not going to tell this story, but there was something that happened to me like a year and a half ago, two years ago, that like it was a, it was very much a decision that I wouldn't have normally made. And it kind of snowballed and I'm like, I'm just going to go with this. And it went to lengths that I really wasn't prepared for, you know, you're just sorry teasing, to, you're teasing the audience here. It's I, I'm sorry to vague it up, but in, in watching after hours, I couldn't help but reflect on that and think, that's why this movie still works is because no matter what year, um, it's always going to be something that's universal that we can come back to, that every action has a reaction. And sometimes, I mean, for the most part, maybe it's not going to be so bad. But then there are other instances where it just somersaults into something that is completely unexpected. And when you're dealing with a catalyst, um, in this case, in After Hours, it's Marcy, who's... I don't know if she's lying the entire time or if she's telling the truth or if this is like what she does with men to like string them along. And then when you have an unreliable character dealing with someone who is like grounded and maybe, like I said, maybe a little bit of a doormat, we don't know what's going to happen because he's already taken a chance to get this far and now he's stuck. So just going back to the idea that I feel like that's why this movie's always going to uh, last. Yeah, well, also, too, I love that we don't belabor the idea that he is uh, this bored out of his mind person. Like, the movie really doesn't linger on that too long. Like, we don't spend 25 minutes setting up what he does for his job and 
how he comes home every day. It's just like a very quick scene and then a chance encounter and then him back at his apartment thinking, F it, you know, I'll call, I'll give, yeah. I'll give her a call and, you know, I'm going to follow up on this things that she had for sale, these paperweights, because I want to meet this other woman again who's her roommate. And What's the worst that can yeah. happen? And, 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 and again, it's like I, I mentioned it before, but just it's simple, but at the same time, it kicks things off in such a great quick way where we don't need all this backstory because we're going to learn how he deals with the situation throughout the evening. It does make for, I wouldn't say this movie's plotless by any means. Scene for scene, it's like this weird scenario and then this weird scenario and like it's almost like a domino effect of like, well, because this happened, now he's stuck here. And that's how a lot of scripts are, you know, where there's action reaction. It doesn't feel cliched or like contrived in any way. Um, I feel like the situations that happen feel a little spontaneous and that this character never really seems like he's doing anything that's too off the mark. He, he's just downright curious. He's like, I got to know if this woman's lie, lying. You know, he's not playing. You know, he, he actually starts kind of getting like a little defensive and like want, you know, demanding, you know, he thinks all this is a put on, you know, he's like, he's almost laughing because he's like, this situation has gotten so crazy. Are, are you messing with me? You know, he he's self-aware and I love that. And because of that, when I'm watching this movie, I don't get frustrated. Um, you know, I've, I've just watched a movie the other night. It was a remake of River Wild. And half an hour into the movie, I just I started getting so mad because they put these characters in a situation that if you were in, you know, immediately you're like, what would I do? And, the, and they set it up in a way that you question the characters. And this, I feel, doesn't do that. It doesn't make you question characters' decisions so much because it's moving so quickly and it doesn't really even give you a moment to like kind of catch your breath and think about, well, what would I do in this situation? You mean like the Meryl Streep River Wild? Yeah, they remade it and it's, it's absolutely terrible. It's just like not that old. Like why even remake that? Anyway, I do think that there is like a logical narrative, like what, what you're talking about here. And, and I think that it's even more blatantly obvious when you go back and watch it for a second time, as far as plot wise and like writing wise, there's so many little hints that are said through a character that lead you to oh this is going to come into play later like for instance the character of julie played by terry gar who just offhandedly mentions oh yeah i get free copies i live above a copy place i get free copies all the time later on she's responsible for making all of these flyers with paul's face on it that makes the entire neighborhood of soho gang up and and try to hunt him down there are all of these little story elements planted within the story that don't seem relevant until the whole picture comes into play. And I think that that's where, while it can seem like it's meandering maybe a little bit because it is Paul's adventure that he does seem like he's flying by the seat of his pants, it's really plotted out. And I do like that Scorsese chose to shoot the entire film at night. It's a very difficult thing to do. Night shoots are something that are generally rough on actors. They're totally opposite of every everyone. You know, they're staying up all night. There's more lighting involved. But Scorsese really wanted to give... He didn't want to shoot night for day. He didn't want to... Even the interiors, I mean, they could have faked them. They could have made the interiors black out the windows and made it look like it was night. But he made the decision, like, we're only going to shoot at night. We're going to shoot through the evening. When the sun comes up, that's when we are all going to go home and go to sleep and then we'll be back right before the sun goes down setting up for the next night kind of tricky you know and I think he did a lot of that with not the entire movie but a lot of it with Taxi Driver 
And a lot of the scenes in here when Paul Hackett is in the taxi cab, you know, they're just using available light. Maybe they're doing a little light in the cab to light his face. But for the most part, you know, for the exterior of the cab, it's just like the lights from the city, you know, and how much we can see, um, how much available light they have. It makes for a different style, a different looking movie. Just that in itself adds to this feeling of like, man, this is really late. And when you're watching a movie that you feel like the evening drags on really late, because usually in a movie we're used to, um, you know, a next day the sun comes up, someone hits their alarm, something, this movie just doesn't let up. You're just like trapped in this evening until the very end. I'm glad that you brought up the use of lighting because Michael Ballhouse, the cinematographer, that's his wheelhouse, is shooting uh, with available light, more so than subtracting all of the light that you have and creating your own lighting situation, which for After Hours, not only does it make it feel real, but it also adds a surreal aspect to it and also makes it feel like this night is never going to end for Paul, that it's just like constant and that he's forever haunting these dark corners of Soho. I don't ever think that it's too dark, but um, it certainly uh, for me adds a lot of, uh, really makes me feel like I'm in that situation with Paul. And since you brought up Michael Ballhouse, you know, we talked about him in Goodfellas. Uh, This was his first film working with Martin Scorsese. Uh, In an interview, he said that it was his dream to work with Martin Scorsese. Um, And he was very excited to do this collaboration And he said when they were filming After Hours, Martin Scorsese was like, there's a lot of setups I want to do, like a ton, um, way more than I would on a normal movie, and we need to shoot really fast. And Michael Ballhouse didn't argue. He was like, sounds great, you know, and was up for the challenge of like, you just tell me what you need, how many shots we need to do, and I'll do whatever I can and we'll make it happen. And that's how they worked. And he said Martin Scorsese was like felt more free like he was excited and he was like having such a good time and after after hours they continued their working relationship michael ballhouse shot like six more scorsese movies he shot color money last temptation of christ goodfellas scorsese would go on to work with robert richardson quite a bit post michael ballhouse but they had a really great working relationship and you can see the tonality and the difference in these films versus when Scorsese would work with a cinematographer and the budgets would get bigger and they would light the shit out of like every little bit of the scene, you know, had so much artificial light where this one, it looks smaller and the budget feels smaller, but it looks more like reality, even though there's all these fantasy-like situations happening. And don't get me wrong, there are moments that are super lit in After Hours, Um, and things that are highlighted. But overall, it feels like all the light sources that are coming, especially in the bars and the places that they're at, feel like they're coming from natural sources and that they didn't completely flip everything around so that they could highlight every little bit of the bar. One thing I loved hearing was that Scorsese, like pre-after hours, one thing that was annoying to him was always waiting around for like lighting setups to get set up. So when Michael Ballhouse came on the scene and he was running gun in like ready to get 16 to 20 shots done in a night that Scorsese didn't have time to like go to his trailer to sit down. Like it left him enough time to work with the actors and like, like Scorsese. I mean, if you ever hear the man talk, like he's just like constant and so to work with Michael Ballhouse, who's also like that, some people said that it made Scorsese like pretty giddy about it. 
I think Michael Ball said he shot like something like 18 movies in like five years or something insane. Yeah. And all of them were like two weeks worth of shooting. And this was a pretty tight shoot, even for like a studio picture. They did 40 evenings, you know, two two months of shooting, which uh, you hear independent films shoot for like 21 days or something. But for how much is going on in this movie, it's it's a pretty tight schedule for how much footage that they got and how many wild setups they had to do, especially some of these where Scorsese was like so specific, like the scene where um, she throws down the keys to Paul Hackett. Just that scene alone, uh, when that happens, you're like, oh, okay, this is definitely not like a generic shot we're gonna even for keys coming down and falling onto the ground we're gonna make that like off kilter and kinetic than uh just uh let's just see them fall to the ground and even in that shot the emotion that's communicated in it like yes okay we're seeing keys drop and for a moment we as an audience think those keys are going to hit paul in the face and when would you ever think or how would you even think to visualize the character realizing that too but for a split second you see it also while shooting that that was actually a a concern at the time too but Ballhouse and Scorsese being on the same page just married the uh, director element and uh, visual communication just like so well together I totally agree why don't we stop there Uh, we'll go to another clip from After Hours then we get back we'll talk about the casting characters of this crazy movie also the release and that uh, really really interesting Howard Shore score I'm sorry I I wonder, you think I could just crash out on your couch here for a couple hours? I am just beat. Why don't you just go home? Well, I've been asking myself that one all night long. So? So what happened? Why can't you? All right. I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. She gave me her phone number. So when I got home, I gave her a call. She said to come on over. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. Then I got to know this girl, and I didn't really get along with her that well. It didn't really work out, so I left. I tried to take a subway tonight, but the fare went up. Did you know that, that the fare went up? Yes. You knew that? I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that. So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender, a really nice guy who wanted to lend me the money. I mean, he really wanted. Now, she's also pissed off at me, and for this, I don't blame her at all for the way I treated her friend, and it was inexcusable, so I marched right in there to apologize, but she'd already killed herself. I was too late. So I remember that he was just about to give me the money when all of a sudden his phone rang. His girlfriend killed herself tonight. Huh? Is that a coincidence? No, because the same girl who I came downtown to see was dead too. That's because they're the same person. They're both dead. I couldn't believe that. Now, he didn't know that I knew that I came down to, you know, his girlfriend, because I mean, he would have he would have taken my face and he would have he would have just smashed it. Luckily, there was this girl who was there who witnessed the whole thing who let me use her phone. Really nice about it too. Let me use the phone. That was it. Just use it. Pick it up and put it down. Pick it up and put it down. So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave, you know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl, and now I've got to die for it, you know. Oh, that's the girl. That is Julie. That's her. That's the girl. Look, Julie. Julie. Julie, it's me. What are you doing? Come here. Oh, God. That's the one. That's the one. 
This is a fun movie to watch if you haven't seen it before or haven't seen it in a really long time because all these quick little scenes of quirky characters are made up by so many familiar faces that weren't familiar at the time of the release of the movie, but now all of them have gone on to do so many other movies. Probably the most familiar faces when this movie came out would have been Cheech and Chong, um, who aren't playing themselves. I always have to like remind myself of that because you put those two together in the movie and I immediately just think of their characters of Cheech and Chong. And Scorsese was totally a fan of Cheech and Chong, and I think including them in this movie just shows his wide range of tastes, you know, as far as comedy goes. And I also, too, like that everybody has, like, a purpose in the movie. You know, it's it's to basically provoke or prod the lead character played by Griffin Dunn and everybody gets their little quick moment to shine, and then we leave that character. I mean, we come back to some of them, but each actor gets to have, I think, a lot of fun in this movie. But let's start first with our main actor, Griffin Dunn, who produced the movie, who put this thing together, really gunning for this to be like a breakout film for him. Now, he had done American Werewolf in London. That's really where I think most people are familiar with seeing his face because um, that movie was a big hit. He has he brings a lot of the sensibilities of his character in that movie to After Hours. He's handsome, but he's not overly handsome. Physically fit, but he doesn't look like he's been working in a gym. You know, he doesn't have these like very distinct Hollywood movie star qualities. He also has a different style of humor that is kind of leads you on, like when he gets a little like. Uh, sarcastic or like biting with his humor in this movie. It kind of throws you off at first, but then you start to get into it because he's getting prodded so much in this movie, he kind of starts fighting back a little bit with, with his jabs and his comments. And for a character that starts out being kind of just accepting of whatever comes his way, you know, sometimes a character like that can be passive and boring. And Griffin Dunn is not that. And I think even visually looking at him, He has very striking features. He's got some good eyebrows. He's got a good, thick, black head of hair. And I mean, I don't know, like there's something about him that is the perfect blend over from the 70s into the 80s. And he's an accessible guy while at the same time looking at him, he's got a little bit of maybe danger to him, which the character of Paul needs to survive after hours. He has a heavy load for this movie because he has to react to so many things that are seemingly kind of insane and not have a knee-jerk reaction, but react in a way that keeps the movie going, but like is somewhat believable. But then he also is constantly having to explain himself to people and like explain a situation and the exhaustion in his voice, especially toward the end of the movie when he's just so frustrated and he's so sick of explaining everything that's happened. And that to me is the funniest part of the movie because poor guys on the couch, like listening to all this and like, what does any of this have to do with me? You know, I, you're actually ruining my night now because I was thinking something exciting was going to happen. And since you brought up that scene, the the character who I think is just known as Street Pickup, who's the fourth time that we have um, a gay character in this movie, played by Robert Plunkett. It's a really curious thing that struck me and I had forgotten that there were so many like gay characters implanted into this movie and maybe that you know maybe I sound weird saying that now but for 1985 the gay characters that that are in this film are so normalized and no one's making like it's not a joke it's not like 
a thing. It's just that they exist in the world and they're not really stereotypes either. I mean, maybe a little bit with a leather couple, but not really. And even with that, I don't know that the leather couple is, it's not played for a joke, which when I was rewatching this, cause I hadn't seen it in a long time. I was like, oh man. Cause but then what for, happens yeah, though is, it, is they're sympathetic. Yeah. Way into it's like they, you know, they show them making out in the background and it's holds on it for, for fairly long time and i know this is like a more uh, progressive part of new york but for a 1980s movie i was waiting for the joke to happen like the joke didn't come and i was like wow i'm kind of surprised that they're letting this scene play out yeah the more i thought about it like why are there so many gay characters implanted into this movie and nothing about them is a joke And I kind of came to the realization that it's because of the neighborhood that we were in, where it's artists, punkers, kind of lowlifes, like there's some seedy stuff that's happening. So we're going to have gay characters in that. I mean, just historically, that's kind of what it would be like. And I think in the mid 80s, the neighborhood of Soho, like that was pretty accurate. That those characters were put into these scenes makes a lot of sense for the time period. But looking at it now, It sticks out, but you're looking for a reason like, is this going to be cringeworthy? And it never is. Yeah, I was was pleasantly surprised that it didn't go the way of so many other 80s movies that we've revisited. There was something that the street pickup Robert Plunkett actor said um, that he kind of helped Scorsese figure out uh, the gay characters, like how to signify that they were gay or something like that. And Scorsese said something like, well, let's let's give him an earring. And Plunkett said something like, Scorsese's the straightest guy you could ever meet. And he's like, earrings are for out gay guys. My character's totally in the closet. That's why I picked up this guy. So if anything, you know, we had some uh, some assistance in, in yeah. educating Scorsese. Generally, his characters are pretty homophobic in a lot of Scorsese's movies. And this movie's dominated by women, probably. Yeah, yeah. One of the few movies that is has uh, the characters more like emasculated, if anything. And definitely, the women have the upper hand in this movie and the power. And let's start there. Let's let's actually from here on out. Let's kind of go in order of how they appear in the movie. Um, starting with uh, Roseanne Arquette, who man just immediately entices you like her exchange with Paul and her exchange with Griffin Dunn in the cafe immediately there's a chemistry there there's sparks and you want to know like what she's about you know not just not just from the way she looks but the way she has like a warmness toward him and looks like she wants to know like more not just have like a like a minutia type conversation And she also seems like a mystery. Like we don't know where it's going with her. And it isn't until a little bit later when Paul takes the step forward to call her that we learn that, okay, there is something confusing about Marcy. What's she hiding? Is she unstable? Is she lying? Is she leading him on? There are just so many questions about Marcy. And at the end, I really don't know who the character of Marcy is or what the truth is about her. Well, yeah, there seems to be... uh a realm of mystery, but behind many of the characters, I mean, we get what their connections are with each other, but we don't necessarily get who they are and, uh, cover your ears real quickly. If you haven't seen this movie, cause I don't want to spoil it. I'll give this a quick beat here, but the character Marcy played by Roseanne Arquette does die in the movie. 
and it's the most bizarre death scene. We don't actually see her die, but like she's later discovered by Paul who it's strange. It's like they make it this weird sensual thing because she's dead. And instead of him being concerned about necessarily the fact that she's dead, he wants to check to see if she actually has these burns because there's been all this buildup of whether or not she has all these burn scars all over her body. And it's kind of a weird scene because he's kind of like she's dead, but he's like lifting her clothes off to kind of inspect her body for scars. And, you know, it's revealed that she doesn't have any, you know, he does find a tattoo and that's gives you a connection to another character. So you're given a little bit more information, but you're still in the dark um, as to why she was um, kind of like hiding the secret about possibly having scars because he does find this burn cream that's prescribed to her. It's very, very bizarre. But I think a lot of that is just kind of like the intro of the movie of like bringing you into this unknown world of like weird characters. Just one of the many things that add to the curious aspects that you never really have an answer to. This wasn't the first time that Griffin Dunn or Amy Robinson had worked with Rosanna Arquette. She starred in Baby It's You, the film that they did prior to this. And Griffin Dunn, I didn't know this, that they had done a movie called The Wall earlier. And they had had a little romance on set and remain friends afterwards and have done many films uh, subsequently, but that that added to why they had such really good chemistry on screen, despite it being a completely bizarre interaction between them. The next character that Paul stumbles upon in this movie is Marcy's roommate, Kiki, who is the reason why Paul calls in the first place. He talks to Kiki because she's the makes these paperweights that He's sort of interested, and he's not really interested in getting cream one. Cheese, cream cheese bagel. Cream cheese bagel paperweight. Uh, he's not necessarily interested in one, but he knows that if he buys one, he'll get to talk to her roommate more that he's already established a little bit of a flirtation and interest in. When he gets to her apartment, her loft, we see Kiki. You know, we've only heard her voice. She's played by Linda Fiorentino. She's the one that throws the keys down, invites him up into the apartment. Marcy, the person that he's interested in, and scene is nowhere to be found. But Kiki now is just like dominating the scene. You see that she's an artist. You see that she's working in, uh, she's working on like, it looks like a paper mache, like body. There's all these other pieces of art that are in her apartment. She's like sort of half dressed and like covered with plaster and immediately sort of like says, hey, you know, start working on this for me. And Paul at this point is like, he sees this beautiful woman and is like, all right, I don't know what's going on. This is so strange. And he's not, he wasn't really, I don't think he was expecting her to be the way she is. And I don't think the audience is either. Linda Fiorentino really dials it up here, like not to be a creep, but like really comes off as like an extremely sexy presence in this movie. Right when she comes on screen, it's like, you can't, you're just like, okay, what, what is this person about? You know, and she's sort of seducing Paul immediately. I think that's the first moment in the movie that kind of like, it takes it to a next level. It's like heightened and you're like, okay, what's going to happen? Is he going to, now he's going to hook up with Kiki or what's going to happen? Like, why is she coming on to him when she knows that he's here to see her roommate? What's, what's the deal? Yeah. So many questions about the character of Kiki and learning also that Linda Fiorentino auditioned for this part for Griffin and Scorsese basically kind of how she's dressed in the film which threw them off completely like coming in pretty cold half-dressed and wore like a really short skirt totally threw them off uh, but one of the reasons that she landed the role and of course I mean seeing her in this film you're not expecting Kiki to 
be as enticing as she is but she's not even trying to be she's just like she's just standing there in a bra working on like this giant sculpture but for some reason and she's not doing anything to like I mean except for when she does accidentally step out and she's topless for no reason yeah and (laughs) And when she kind of there's this there's this sort of like back and forth playfulness of like oh do you want me to rub your shoulders you know she's like putting it out there like i need a shoulder rub and you you kind of like as an audience you're like okay this is clearly leading to something and then she just passes out and then you know of course her roommate shows up and is like what the hell like why is my roommate passed out with her like clothes half off and you're like you know standing over her and immediately from there on out i think that's the moment where we're as an audience are just like kind of shrouded in confusion you know we're just like held hostage by what's going to happen next and like what information we may or may not get from the character to get through this evening. With the massage scene that happens with Paul giving Kiki a massage. So Scorsese asked Griffin Dunn if it would be possible for him to not have sex uh, during the production of this film. He's like a week before I don't want you to have sex. And then during the entire production, I don't want you to. And so Griffin Dunn was like, uh, I guess, you know, that's fine. But but the character of Paul, we need to feel like his entire night begins because he thinks he might have a romance with Marcy, Roseanne Arquette. So I can see Scorsese's point of view of being like, we want you as the actor to, I want you to just emanate that. Like you're not getting laid, like, you know. And so I guess Griffin Dunn held out and did not have sex, didn't do anything until the last week of filming He said a friend came into town and one thing led to another and he went to film the scene with Linda Fiorentino giving her a back massage and I guess he looked too like comfortable like doing it and Scorsese just goes cut 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 and he calls him over and he's like did you get laid? And Griffin just like breaks down and he's like I'm so sorry I did and he's like you just blew the entire scene. I think it's one of the funniest stories that I've ever heard of a director calling somebody out and being able to notice that because I mean, it it makes sense that he would be because he's been in tune with the character of Paul this entire time. So he would notice when something's different. And this had to be a really difficult movie to stay in character because at any given moment, they're shooting out a sequence and his level of confusion and anxiety is heightened depending on at what point in the movie and the evening we're at and to have to like rechannel that now you know they're they can watch replay immediately you know but this is back before you had that immediacy of like okay here's exactly where I was at and like having to like you know obviously there's people on set to help keep track of those things and keep continuity but just as a person to find that level of like what notch on the anxiety scale was I last time we shot you know I got to pick up from right there I think for Paul that was one thing that had to be kept in check with his suits there are like 13 different suits that were in various stages of distress yeah because there's one moment where his suit's like totally drenched because he comes in out of the rain into the bar um, to kind of get away from the elements and that's when we meet the character played by John Hurd, who's the bartender and who's strangely really chill about everything and then has like, um, but then has like this like strange like aggression at the same time, like when he can't get the register open. And it's just, it, but because it's so calm and quiet in this bar and everything's been so crazy, it gives us the audience like a moment to relax. And then 
it, it kind of feels like great, you know, to get this moment of silence and you're relaxing with Paul because we've been watching him go through so much stuff. And then when John Hurd starts like kicking the register and like making this roll out sound, you're just like, oh my God, please stop. Like, I, 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 I want to I stay relaxed for a moment. And Tom the bartender is probably the first character in a line of, of people that go to help Paul get back home. But this is the first time where we see something gets in the way. And that something that gets in the way of Paul getting help from Tom the bartender is learning that Tom's girlfriend is Marcy. And this is completely blowing Paul's mind because it's not like he can say to Tom, you know, the reason that he came to Soho in the first place, um, which isn't the oddest thing to happen in the bar. Probably the oddest thing, if I were Paul, uh, would be when I get a note slipped from the server that's working in the bar, Julie, played by Terry Gar, and it's this receipt paper that just says, help, I hate my job. Like, where do you go from there? And it's interesting because he's, again, approached by a woman who this time, you know, he's like, ah, I've, I've already got too much on my plate, but he still can't help himself from like, getting involved in yet another person's life. It sort of comes out of nowhere. That's the only part of this movie where um, this tiny bar really late at night has more than one employee. Yeah, Terry Gar, John Hurd, and then the gay couple and uh, Paul. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure you hate your job because you can't be making any money yeah. here whatsoever. But I think like at this point in the movie, like he normally wouldn't entertain the idea of like following her to apartment. But at this point, he's he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have a lot of options. He kind of wants to get home, but he's going to have to rely on the help of strangers. So he needs to kind of not do what they want necessarily, but like entertain whatever it is they're going through so he can get what he needs. And John Hurd says, I'll help you out, but I need you to do something for me. Can you go check on my apartment? Because there's been this rash of burglaries in the neighborhood. Paul sees a way out. Sure, I'll do it. I'll leave my house keys here. I'll go check on your place. And it's at that point we have the first indication where multiple people in the neighborhood become suspicious of Paul because they've never seen him around the apartment building. Possibly this is the guy that's robbing everyone in the neighborhood. Now on Paul's way back, this is when he re-encounters Terry Gar, who says, I did it. I quit my job. He looks to her for help, and she says, sure. Yeah, why don't you come back over to my place? And this is where uh, you think the movie can't get any stranger. And then once <laughs> he gets into her apartment, things seem a little normal. I mean, we she see, does have a beehive. She does have a beehive. Yeah, she's dressed like 1960s, you know, and has like sort of this like peppy attitude for yeah. just quitting her job. I mean, she's excited. This is one of the few times where it's like there, there's like a highlight of lights going on uh, by her bed. And we see like these huge rat traps, like snap traps, basically in a circle, like on the outside of her bed on the floor. And uh, it's it's just a really quick shot, but man, it just stayed with me. What what's happening here? Like yeah. in this apartment, <laughs> like the rats are so bad that you have to surround your bed all the way around the bottom of your bed, otherwise rats are going to come in to your bed while you're sleeping. Um, and there's like not a mention of it. The fact that we just see this and we're shown this, you know, specific thing, and then we cut back to their conversation. It's kind of a, like a unique way to show what's going on in someone's life without having to say anything. And it's just so quick. It gets him unsettled immediately. He's just like, I just don't want any part of like what's going on in this lady's life now. I just want to get out of here. Julie's apartment is one of the best sets, in my opinion, because you get so much information about who she is as a person without anything, including the rat traps. And this scene also brings us back to the bagel with cream cheese paperweight that she offers to give Paul as a service. 
uh, for being a kind human and coming back to see her. And at this point, like I'd almost like forgotten about the <laughs> the paperweights. And I think in part of my brain was like, did those even exist? Was that just all part of this ruse to get him over there in the first place? And I you're think like, that that's part of it. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, you know, and I, and I love these little the strangeness of the night and how everything's like kind of interconnected in some sort of strange way. But yet he's the only person that's like knows all these connections, like we're kind of getting them as he is um, throughout the night. So the next supporting important character that we come across is Gail, played by Catherine O'Hara. Paul finally sees a cab and is excited. This is my ticket out. He's come across some money and he's got a way home. So he tries to get in the cab. Cab door opens and hits him, injures him, and it's Catherine O'Hara playing Gail that comes out. Once again, we have another character that says, hey, I'm so sorry. Uh, I hurt you. Let me help you. Why don't you come with me back to my apartment and um, we'll get this figured out. Gail, I don't know. I I love all of these female characters in this film, but Gail might be my favorite because she's extra irritating to Paul, who's like heightened and really done with the night at this point. If she is picking up on the fact that he's done with the night, she doesn't care. She is pretty self-centered and she wants Paul kind of to thank her for helping him in the first place. But Catherine O'Hara gave so much to this part, as she does with any performance that she does. For her character to start out as empathetic, let me help you, moving to being irritated with him, moving to, no, let me help you. And then the arc with her character just turns absolutely nuts because she's the catalyst for Paul's uh, horrific climax of the entire film. Even though they don't share scenes together, seeing Catherine O'Hara and John Hurd in After Hours, I can't help but think, oh, look, it's the parents from Home Alone, like five years before that movie came out. And although both actors have played many straight-laced roles, we've seen Catherine O'Hara do so many brilliantly neurotic and spastic characters throughout her entire career, and I honestly can't think of a movie that's ever been lessened because of her presence on screen, no matter how small the role. Yeah, that's true. I think you said uh, Cheech and Chong were probably the most well-known at this point. Probably second would have been Terry Garr, and then maybe even Catherine O'Hara, because she was known from SCTV at this point, and Scorsese couldn't have been more stoked to have her in this film because he was a fan of that. But the final woman to round us out of this harrowing journey of Paul's is the character of June, played by Verna Bloom. Throughout the film, we stumble into this club called Berlin, and... Verna Bloom is known as the woman who's always there. She evidently lives beneath the bar and is kind of a mystery. She's a little bit older, kind of motherly. Again, there's somewhat of a mystery about her. And Paul goes into Berlin. Previously, he'd found this place like absolutely hopping and packed and kind of scary. And Paul comes into this bar and finds June and the bartender, who's played by like the first AD of the movie, and just kind of walks over to her and just, it's almost like it's his breakdown moment. Like he needs to talk about what has happened to him. He's past the point of lunacy when he just had his meltdown at the the gay guy who was listening to him this is just someone who he just like he just wants to be embraced by her and it's such a beautiful scene in a way it's like semi-romantic but also we feel a certain catharsis when he meets june but it also kind of feels like is is this where paul's gonna 
is he going to die? Like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen to him right now. Uh, since you bring up the Berlin scene, the club, uh, when Paul originally goes into the club, um, it's like this like crazy, chaotic New York popping club scene. Uh, there is a very blink and you miss it moment where Martin Scorsese is uh, working in a spotlight. And so it cuts to him very quickly. And I don't want to spoil anything about what happens with the character of June, but she does have an apartment underneath Berlin. And what happens to Paul underneath there? There is absolutely no way you're ever going to guess how he's going to get out of this jam. And finally, I want to make one quick mention. Um, earlier in the film, there's a quick, quick moment of character actor Dick Miller, who Scorsese was a fan of. Dick Miller was in so many exploitation movies, ones that Scorsese um, came up on and you know worked in those circles with Corman in the 70s. And I, I think it's great you know, that Dick Miller um, would take a quick, you know, four lines in a Scorsese movie, um, you know, but then like one, you know, one year after playing like one of the fairly big, large role in Gremlins, which was, you know, three times the size of After Hours. But he's just one of those actors that would swim in between exploitation and big budget stuff. And because so many directors loved him and appreciated his acting and his look would, you know, if they could, they're like, let's plug in Dick Miller right here. We got a nice little quick scene. He does get to say the title of the movie. That's true. And one other face that you might recognize before we close out here is the boyfriend or leather daddy friend of Kiki, the character of Horst, played by Will Patton. As soon as you see this guy's face, you're like, that guy's in this too? He probably has, what, two, three words? And you think that he's going to be really menacing, but then you're like, wait, what's his deal exactly? Again, um, mystery shrouding this character you're not exactly sure if he's gonna beat up paul or if he's gonna involve paul in a threesome with he and kiki you don't really know what's gonna happen yeah there's so many like open-ended moments (laughs) of this movie especially with the characters but it is funny to see will Patton in this role because he always plays these sort of like passive sensitive characters and to kind of see him like like wearing leather and like he's just like recently tied up kiki for some sort of like sex game that they're about to play so i wanted to briefly into the post-production. Scorsese has continued to use pretty much on every movie since he got his start, Thelma Schoonmaker. And the original cut of this movie was two hours and 40 minutes, which to be honest, uh, for Martin Scorsese movie these days sounds about on par. <laughs> um, but if you recall the running time of the final cut after hours, it's like a cool 95 minutes. So they cut out 45 to 50 minutes out of this movie. I guess the Original cut that was two hours and 40 minutes felt really long, and it also uh, was not funny. Um, man, I can't imagine sitting through two hours and 40 minutes of this movie. No. It just, it's, it, I think it works because it moves so quickly. So they really had to trim it down. There was also some discussion on the ending as well, because it is a movie that doesn't have, I would say, like a super satisfying ending where you've been taking through this like riddle of an evening and given like a definitive answer on like where this guy stands. But at the same time, I think the idea is just the release of like, okay, he didn't die. He like survived the evening. Maybe he's learned from this craziness and he his doldrum mundane life actually feels kind of comforting after like a whirlwind evening. There were a lot of ideas um, out there about what 
the ending should be. I don't think very many were shot, but Scorsese was outsourcing to friends like Spielberg and De Palma and Paul Schrader about, you know, what what should I do? How should this movie end? Because it's absolutely nuts. Like, how do you end a movie like this? And ultimately, Scorsese started out not liking how the movie initially was supposed to end, but came back around to being like, I don't know how else you end this movie other than kind of back where he started, which I don't know, like there's something about this film because it is so out there that I want something extreme to happen. And it's not to say that what happens isn't extreme or isn't unusual, but it is kind of perfect. And I can't think of anything better either. Yeah, and it's not like this movie's like some noir film where you're expecting there to be some sort of uh, moral ground yeah. that's, you know, a character's done somebody wrong. And it's like, is it going to come full circle? I like that it just, uh, you know, the night ends as quickly as it started, you know, like just um, happenstance, just like this random event. And maybe Paul's going to rethink the next time that he decides to take yeah. a chance going out. And so I wanted to mention the score here because if you're a fan of Scorsese, you know that most of his movies are just wall-to-wall songs. You know, he's a big fan of like songs of the era of whatever movie that he's making or songs that like work toward some theme, you know, whether it be the lyrics or like the attitude of the music itself. Um, rarely does he do a lot of full-on scores. I mean, he did one for Taxi Driver, which is very effective. This movie, because it's so offbeat, it seemed like this movie, it would almost ruin it if he put wall-to-wall like rock songs. You know, it seemed like it needed something to lend to the bizarreness of everything that's going on on screen. And so he uh, went to Howard Shore, who we've talked about many times on this podcast, who's done so many amazing film scores of different varieties of genres and wide variety of instrumentations. And his score for this is incredibly unique. It does drive the movie a little bit. It does give you that sense of being off balance. It also gives you that sense of anxiety in like a pulsing score. To me, uh, this is a score that I wish was available that was released um, at the time it came out. But it, as far as I know, is still unavailable to uh, get you know, either a copy of or listen to streaming. It's so synth heavy. I love it. And I love the ticking clock aspect to it. It just adds to that sense of urgency all throughout. You, you kind of lose it in your subconscious, but it's like there and, you know, making you feel on edge. Yeah. You're like, am I running out of time? Is Paul running out of time? What is this all leading to? So as I said earlier, they did get the movie down to 95 minutes. Uh, the movie was released. It had its New York premiere at the Museum of Modern Art. It's a very New York movie, so it was very, very critically acclaimed in New York. But universally, I think critics love the movie. It was a bit underseen. The movie only grossed about $10 million in its original release. And it, I think this is a movie that a lot of people caught on cable. It has become sort of a cult hit. And I think it's always mentioned as one of those Scorsese movies that like, oh man, that's the Scorsese movie I haven't seen. I've heard a bunch about it, but I haven't seen it because it also wasn't a, never got a Blu-ray release till recently from Criterion. And it wasn't necessarily like a large video release, but it did occasionally, you could catch it on cable and it was on VHS, but I'm glad that it's finally getting seen and talked about more. And I'm glad that we're able to be a part of that conversation and part of this like new um, interest in After Hours. The only criticism I heard about it was uh, 
there were some test audiences that thought, why are all the women in this like portrayed as crazy and just like kind of just off their rocker? And Scorsese had a really good comment, which I think is a testament to the neighborhood of Soho in general and what he was trying to portray was that he's like, it's not just the women. Like, think about it. Everyone that Paul encounters is off their rocker. Like something isn't right with everybody. It, I mean, it does kind of stick out and you do think, why is every person that he interacts with um, like this? But it's just because it's women that you think that. But it's everybody. Yeah. And I like the craziness of this movie in the sense that Paul Hackett lives in New York. It's not like he's some guy from Iowa who's visiting New York and has this like crazy night and everyone he runs into is like totally insane. It's within two neighborhoods away for Paul. Like he's a New Yorker, but even for him, things are getting like pretty heavy. And though the movie was universally loved when it was released, it was shrouded in controversy a little bit um, after the release because of uh, some alleged plagiarism that happened. And this was something I never knew about. And once we started kind of getting into it, and looking into it, I was like, really? Is it someone said like, oh, he, someone stole my idea or something like that? That's kind of where I thought the story was going to go. And then once I started reading more about it, it was like, whoa, this was like straight up like ripped off. There was a little bit more than just uh, taking an idea in a different direction. And Griffin Dunn kind of thought the same thing that you did initially when he heard that the production was going to get hit with a plagiarism lawsuit. He thought, oh, well, this is I mean, this means that the movie's made it. We're, we're a success. That, that's when the people will start coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, you stole my story. And he mentions it to the writer, Joe Minion. And he says, have you ever heard of Joe Frank? And he's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Joe Frank. So pretty much Joe Minion. Um, I don't know if it's through osmosis or if he just straight up heard this uh, 1982 NPR monologue that a really, really well-known guy named uh, Joe Frank did this show called Lies. And it's, um, you know, it's a relatively short piece, but it's pretty much like the entire first third of the movie. And like I listened to it and it's, it's like nuts. It's everything to do with, it's not saying like names, you know, but it's you know, cream cheese bagel. It's guy meeting a girl that's like kind of strange going back to her place, this weird artist that makes these, these sculptures and strange stories that he hears from her. Like it's, it's ripped off of yeah, it. Yeah. That, that 11 minutes is available or there's a link and you can listen to the first 11 minutes. And it is kind of crazy because you're like, yeah, this dude was listening to this program and literally it was like, hey, this is a great idea for a movie. I'll just take this 11 minutes nuts. for the first act <laughs> and then I'll kind of make it my own. It's like, you can't do that. But they did uh, They did get into some hot water, but they did settle it out of court. Um, as far as we could find, Joe Frank was compensated handsomely, um, but it was one of those scenarios where they're like, we're going to give you some money and then we can't talk about this. You know, you got to take it to your grave. We don't want it to ruin the legacy of the film, which... Uh, you know, for the most part, I think that happened uh, because it wasn't written about in the press. And this was kind of like a pretty quiet controversy um, until years later. And now I think it's more like widely known, especially if you're starting to research the movie. It comes up pretty quickly. It seems like Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson, I don't think that there's any ill will or anything there. They definitely chalk it up to this was a college student that didn't didn't think about it and just thought that he could pass off at least part of this story as his own 
but Griffin Dunn said something like, you know, he didn't know anything about the industry and didn't know that if he just would have said something in the beginning, we could have like handled this way differently and it would have been fine. Yeah, I think it was like, you know, a young college screenwriter. And then also 40 years ago, intellectual property wasn't something that you hear about every day. I mean, now there's always somebody getting sued over like a song or like a part in a movie or, you know, something. Um, But back then, I don't think it was like such like a boilerplate topic that somebody was like, "Eh, maybe I'll just steal this. No one will care. No one will notice. Yeah. But if you do get a chance after you watch this movie, go find Joe Frank's lies and yeah. listen to it because you'll it's nuts. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It certainly didn't have any ill effect on Scorsese's career. In fact, like After Hours put him kind of back on the map. Even though it wasn't a giant success, it didn't go over budget, which Scorsese was known to do. Um, it did make its money back at the box office because it was low budget, but it did, I think it doubled it. And even on the last day, like when they were like wrapping everything up, Scorsese said to Griffin Dunn, Amy Robinson, and uh, Michael Ballhouse, the cinematographer, like, thank you for giving me back my love of movie making. And to it awaken like like a fun Scorsese. He still was trying to get Last Temptation of Christ off the ground. It didn't quite happen yet. So in between After Hours and Last Temptation, he made Color Money. And that actually turned out to be a really big hit for his career. You know, he was doing a sequel, which was kind of unusual for Scorsese. He's got Tom Cruise, who was becoming one of the biggest actors on the planet, plus Paul Newman, who was reprising a role that he made famous. And at that point, Paul Newman was like a legend in Hollywood. And because that movie was a success, I think that paved the way for Scorsese to get the money and funding to do The Last Temptation of Christ. And then from there, we start the next chapter of Scorsese, Goodfellas, Casino, the Scorsese that we know today. I'm sure this won't be the last Scorsese movie that we talk about. It certainly won't be the last Scorsese movie that we talk about in this episode. Because my pick of the week, Bringing Out the Dead, is a like I said earlier, another underseen Scorsese movie that I'll be talking about. But before I do that, Lindsay, what can you tell me about your pick? What a smooth transition, Justin. You know, after five years, I hope I could transition, <laughs> you know, decently. But what can you tell me about your pick, Something Wild? Doing this podcast has made me get over missing some great movies because finding them 30 or 40 years later can be so exciting. And having never seen something wild, this was truly a wonderful unearthing of a gem that should be brought up way more. And my mom raised me on Melanie Griffith movies, and this is now one of my favorite roles of hers, and I wish I would have discovered it before now. Jeff Daniels plays Charlie, a New York investment banker whose professional career is speedily moving along. But thankfully enough, we don't waste too much time on this aspect of Charlie's life. Instead, we plunge headfirst into what will become an unexpected road trip that will reveal Charlie to himself, letting loose the quiet rebel underneath his corporate clothes. But it all starts with Charlie being called out for not paying his meager breakfast bill at a diner. Eyeing him from across the room, noticeably the only person watching Charlie intentionally not pay his bill, an eccentric-looking, gorgeous, brazen woman, Lulu, played by Melanie Griffith, runs over to confront Charlie on his petty crime. After bobbling his words, uncomfortable with being caught, she offers him a ride. But Lulu has no intention of dropping off Charlie. It's not a kidnapping per se, but what follows in this story is the willing participation of a seemingly free-spirited woman noticing a guy who looks nice enough to manipulate, but could also use a good time. 
but this chance encounter reveals two people who could use another good human in their life to open them up in a very much needed way. Road trip movies of unlikely people being thrown into a car have existed, sure, but the difference here is the so-called kidnapped person is not very reluctant to being thrown into this life adventure. It takes no time for Charlie to become a willing participant. Together, Lulu and Charlie embark upon a semi-dangerous yet reckless trip wherein they behave like they have no days left to live. Since this was my first watch, I thought for sure that Lulu had a terminal illness, but no, her fly by the seat of her pretty black dress is much more innocent than that, but the story will eventually have a darker development. I'm a fan of wacky comedies. Give me a 40s or 80s screwball comedy any day and I'll convince you why it's so much fun. Something Wild has a few screwball elements. It's fast, unpredictable, with seemingly opposite characters whose relationship eventually turns more than just casual sex. The first half of the film is wilder. Lulu and Charlie throwing caution to the wind, oversexed flirtation, stealing booze, running out on checks, Charlie blowing off work and telling his supposed wife that he's had to suddenly go out of town. Spoiler here. Charlie's wife left him many months prior, which will become a bigger story plot point in the movie. The tone of the film twists around a little bit, but the heart remains the same and employs a much more developed storyline that might be expected. Lulu's ex-convict husband, played by Ray Liotta, tracks her down and has some malicious fun with she and Charlie, then turning to pretty much kidnap Lulu. Here's where the story flips. No longer is Lulu breaking Charlie free of his unsatisfying life. Now, Charlie must set Lulu free from her real-life horror show that she was trying to leave behind. The word charming is probably the single best word to describe something wild. Emacs Fry's story takes us on a creative journey with two leads whose inner character becomes more likable as the film goes on. And after our episode 70 on Silence of the Lambs, I learned just how much I appreciate the creative process, character, humility, and thoughtful eye of director Jonathan Demme, who's at the helm for this picture. And like he did with Silence of the Lambs, Demme also brings in Silence of the Lambs' Tak Fujimoto as the director of photography and Kenneth Utt as the producer for this road trip action-adventure romance. Demi's gentle touch to every film he's ever done makes it feel so personal to the audience, including this one. As for Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels, these two, I would never dream of them being opposite each other, but man, does it work so well. Daniels is easily pushed over the edge, being a pent-up yuppie to low-key rebel, and it's adorable and speaks to everyone who has a touch of that within them, the good-natured person who always wants to break the mold but needs someone to give them an excuse. And no stranger to playing a vast array of characters, there's no doubt in my mind that Griffith's portrayal in this film turned her into a bankable star. Lulu turns out to be a woman who seems ethereal. How could anyone this magnetic exist? Then, with that magnetism still in tow, Griffith slyly reveals her character's broken past, the tough road that befell her, all with her soft-spoken commanding presence, like the woman who doesn't need anyone, but also doesn't have her heart completely closed off. And just because I haven't mentioned Ray Liotta's character very much doesn't mean anything. Liotta's possibly functioning at a super high level playing a complete scumbag. I can't help but eat up every second of his screen time. Except in the film's finale, where the tonal change climaxes into violence and Liotta turns completely terrifying. Again though, all the main characters go through such extremes in their evolution. Let me just love fest a little bit more about Something Wild because the soundtrack totally checks all of my boxes. Just think David Byrne of The Talking Heads, Laurie Anderson's atypical art pop, John Cale of The Velvet Underground, throw in some Oingo Boingo and New Order, all atop a consistent reggae undercurrent, and you've got just as stimulating a soundtrack as you do a film. 
And on top of it all, after my adult discovery of the Feelies just a few years ago, having that band appear in the movie and playing for an extended period of time was a perfect icing on this delightful soundtrack. Justin, you're lucky I'm giving your Criterion edition of this movie back to you because it's hard to let go of. Its unbridled sense of spontaneity, love, and beauty, and the teetering between who we are at our core and our outward performance are just a few remarkable attributes I keep returning to. This film was a terrific escape from everyday life. If you've never seen this offbeat comic action adventure called Something Wild, it's definitely worth seeking out. This is such a pleasant little film, and uh, it also shows like what a wide variety of movies uh, Demi was capable of. Yeah, I love right? it. You know, he was like romantic comedy, you know, horror movie, music, concert. I mean, he just kind of did the spectrum of different genres and didn't seem to back away from any of those challenges of trying to do something that he wasn't known for. Yeah, and every one of his films has that element of just so much earnest heart behind it. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't matter the genre. It's it's totally Jonathan Demme that brings that to the forefront. And always nice to see a pic of Ray Liotta in a, you know, kind of, you know, he does play a lot of the same type of characters, but I like this early pre-Goodfellas, like tough guy role totally. that he played. Totally. And I kept thinking he's, I mean, he's such a scumbag, but he's uh, just in blue jeans and a tight white shirt that's tucked into his pants. I just can't help, like, if I were a dude, like, I just kept looking at him being like, one, if I were attracted to guys or if I were a guy, that's that's the body I want right there. Yeah. That man, he's he's looking fine in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was when uh, men wearing tight tight blue jeans with a tight butt was like all the rage. I mean, he looked the, really good. The 80s. Yeah. All right, Justin, it's your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. Well, my pick of the week is definitely not lighthearted in the least bit. I went with, uh, pro- I would say probably Scorsese's, um, you know, as much as we talked about After Hours being unrecognized as uh, a hidden gem of a Scorsese movie, I think Bringing Out the Dead is probably his least known movie or ones that people like really hate on and I won't lie when I saw this movie when it came out in 1999 I did not like it and I was a huge Scorsese fan like one of my favorite directors and he still is to this day I think I had to watch this movie with more of an open mind I watched this after coming off of uh, several screenings of After Hours and revisiting this I wondered if I'd feel differently about it and I absolutely did this movie is has a sense of maturity to it that I don't think I like appreciate it also has like a a level of cynicism to it that I don't think I appreciated when I was younger and watching it after having worked a job for many, 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 many years. It uh, kind of makes you appreciate uh, not having as a stressful job as these as these guys do. The movie Bringing Out the Dead basically is a somewhat like a week in the life of a paramedic working in New York City in the early 90s in the opening title sequence they make. A note that this is the early 90s. Watching it, I didn't really know what the significance was. I mean, the movie came out in the late 90s. Nicolas Cage plays the lead role here um, as Frank Pierce, who's been pretty much burnt out. He's always um, one step away from like quitting or hoping he gets fired. There's actually even a sequence where um, they're so short on people that uh, they won't fire him. You know, and he he's just like, you promised me you were going to fire me. And again, there's this humor in it that I didn't get when I was younger. And there's a lot of funny parts of this movie where they approach this level of burnout with a sense of humor. You know, at some point when things get so intense in your life, 
you almost have to lean on humor or you almost have to laugh at the ridiculousness of what's going on. Like how, how could things get this out of hand? This movie is not for the faint of heart. It is really up in your face with Scorsese going a hundred miles an hour with the camera movements, with the intensity, with uh, how absolutely horrible Nicolas Cage looks. I mean, they have him just, he's like pale and white. He looks like a ghost. And the majority of the movie is him. He's trying to come to terms with the fact that over the last three months, he's been losing all his patience. He hasn't been able to save somebody. And the movie starts to try to tap into how these paramedics deal with this idea of like, we saved someone's life. It was a good day. We lost somebody. It was a bad day. And he's been haunted by a a young woman that he lost to OD'd. And there's also a subplot of this new drug that's on the streets that's killing a lot of young people. And so the majority of the people that he tries to help out are people who have gone into cardiac arrest because of this street drug. This movie also has a little bit of, I wouldn't call it romance, but there's a slight sidestep in the story of him befriending uh, this woman whose father, Nicolas Cage, was able to Uh, resuscitate in the beginning of the movie and he's in the hospital and he meets uh, the daughter of this man who's played by Patricia Arquette and they strike up somewhat of a relationship and he keeps kind of checking in on her and checking in on the father and so there's like tiny subplot of that but the majority of the movie doesn't have so much of a story as it is sequence after sequence of intensity of him showing up on a scene and having to deal with, you know, being that first responder and you're getting the worst of things. Um, They also kind of get into, in the same way that um, Taxi Driver did in this movie, was adapted from a novel by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And he does get into those little behind-the-scenes bits of knowledge of, like, you know, a lot of times there's a dispatcher calling and, you know, all he tells them is, uh, sorry to give this job to you, you know, uh, the, what we heard is there's just a terrible smell. Someone called 911. And so sometimes they're like, oh my God, don't give us this. Or they're dealing with the same drunk person that they, you know, you kind of see this cycle of like how people who are struggling with addiction, there's not a lot of sympathy from the paramedics because they're like, you know, someone else is dying somewhere, but you're trying to kill yourself. And now we're having to like take time out of our day. And you see the difference between some of the employees, like, uh, there's like the employee that just gets off on the high of like how intense this job is. One of the paramedics played by Tom Sizemore. Then you also see someone who's been at it long enough and they're in they're sort of, there's a joy of the job, but there's also like, he only works two nights a week. And so he isn't as burnt out as Nicholas Cage's. And that character is played by Ving Rhames, who pretty much every scene that he's in is absolutely fantastic. It's hilarious. And there's a scene that they go really far with an, overdose sequence where Ving Rhames is taking care of the situation and it's equally funny and terrifying all at the same time but again this movie when I first saw it it was just too much for me it was just too in my face Um, watching it now like again having worked some crappy jobs in my life and worked some jobs where there was a level of uh, awkwardness and like a lot of um, confrontation this movie kind of makes you appreciate like having a more laid back job where things aren't going to go out of control. It reminded me a lot of my friend Ryan who worked at the Austin State Hospital when we both lived in Texas and he would come home and kind of tell me these stories of uh, 
someone coming in, the police dropping off someone who was like wildly out of control. And they were just like, I, we're just going to drop them off the front of the Austin state hospital. And there's several sequences in this movie that kind of almost mirrored stories that he had told me about trying to sort of like subdue somebody who's like, the last thing they want to do is be touched. And they're like kicking and screaming and spitting and scratching. And the level of intensity that, you know, working a job like that, where you almost have to like push aside sometimes even your empathy because you're you yourself are trying not to get hurt there's also a few sequences in this movie that made me really really wish that Scorsese would do a full-on horror movie um I know he did Cape Fear but there's a few sequences in this that paramedics get called into a like creepy abandoned area and they're like man we don't even want to be out here much less like go into this like abandoned building and find out what we're going to see. When the movie was released, it did bomb at the box office by a large margin. Um, I also think this was one of Scorsese's last attempts at doing like a smaller film. Um, not like small, like after hours, because the budget of this movie was like $30 million and had bigger names in it for the time period. But after this movie bombed, I think we saw this was like the last moment in Scorsese's career where he was doing these smaller films and then you know pretty much all through the 2000s we've only seen the movies where their you know budgets are like 150 million or 200 million and they star Leonardo DiCaprio so it is nice to kind of look back at this like final film that he did that was uh, a little bit smaller in scale a little bit more personal I had read that uh during this period, whenever Scorsese had made the movie, um, his parents were getting more elderly. They had had a couple emergency trips, you know, via ambulance to a hospital, and he had been in and out of hospitals to see friends and family. And so he really wanted to shine a light on the paramedics and show how, what a heroic job that they do sometimes. And even though they're under stress and they're tired, they still try to give 100% of their time and their energy to somebody who's, you know, possibly going to die unless they're they're doing something before they even get them to the hospital and this movie will make you appreciate first responders much much more it doesn't it shows them in a really good light but also doesn't stray away from some of the things that they have to do to blow off steam so it's uh and, and like Scorsese in all his movies you know he shows the good and bad sides of his characters and man I'm really glad I rewatched this uh it was a great revisit um it's currently streaming on paramount plus i remember this movie came out when i worked at a video store and i watched it and i think i might have been in a different mindset at the time because the darkness didn't hit me i got the humor of it but it's been since it came out so it's i mean it's been close to 30 years and i really think now um i think i need to rewatch this tonight honestly because um it might I, I expect that it's going to hit me differently. And Justin, you already know that Nicolas Cage and I have a complicated relationship as far as my appreciation of him and movies. But I think this one, especially being in, maybe it's not human medicine, but being in the veterinary uh, world uh, might hit me a little bit differently now. All right, I'm sold. I'm watching this tonight. Well, those are our picks of the week. Jonathan Demi's Something Wild and Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? 
Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. After Hours leaves me with so many ideas about what would have happened if, or the overwhelming idea of how the best laid plants rarely work out the way we expect them. In the case of Paul and After Hours, it's for the much, much worse. In the case of this story I'm about to tell you, it's the early 80s in New York, and this is Joel Murray's unexpected night out with his older brother Billy. He could have never planned what was about to happen. So the Murray brothers are deadheads, meaning Grateful Dead fans. And knowing his little brother was a big fan, Bill calls Joel and says, Hey, uh, you want to take a walk? The cryptic question held weight because the dead were playing at Madison Square Garden. And Joel thought, well, shoot, maybe my brother's taken me to this. But it's 15 minutes before the show's about to start. And though the brothers were in New York City, they're not close to Madison Square Gardens, certainly not close enough to walk in any amount of timely fashion to make it to the show on time. The brothers start out on 96th Street and start going southwest towards the garden. If they kept up a steady pace with no stops, they'd make it there in a little over an hour on foot. But Bill doesn't seem to be in much of a hurry. He's periodically stopping and pointing out notable architecture to Joel, who at this point couldn't care less. He's thinking that they're going to the dead show. Then Bill suggests that they get a beer. The increasingly impatient Joel begrudgingly agrees, but wants this to be the fastest beer of his life. He certainly had no idea that Bill also had sushi on his mind. Joel's indulging his brother, even down to sharing sakis with each other. But Bill's taking his time, while Joel is completely chugging his and trying to speed things up. But then, Bill orders another round. By this point, Joel's about had it with his big brother. Clearly, they're not going to see the Grateful Dead. When they do finally get back to walking, they walk past Madison Square Garden and completely pass it up. Little brother's hopes of seeing the band are dashed, all while Bill's trying to make Joel appreciate the smaller aspects of the city that they take for granted every day. Joel really does not care at this point. He's pissed off. By this point, the Murrays have been walking for three and a half, four hours, no mention of the dead or any other destination point, until Bill starts leading them towards Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi's Holland Tunnel Blues Bar, and it hits Joel. Oh, this is where we're headed? The Blues Bar was a heavy SNL hangout in Manhattan, but nothing that was too crazy to Joel. And as soon as they walk into the bar, there's the boisterous Aykroyd who's ready for Joel's arrival. All right, Jolie's here. Great, now we're in business. Jolie, I need you to do some things, and I need you to do them now. Cut these lemons, these limes, and let's get rolling. Aykroyd tells Bill to just kick back and pick out some tunes on the jukebox. So Joel's cutting lemons, limes, not the most stoked about his new job of the night. And eventually, people start to filter into the bar. The drinks are on the house this particular night, but the patrons are throwing around generous tips. Joel's thinking, okay, well, maybe this isn't such a bad way to spend the night, I guess. But then, the guitarist for the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, comes up to Joel behind the bar and asks for gin and tonic. Joel, of course, obliges, in minor disbelief of who's in front of him. Then, one by one, Mickey Hart, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzman walk into the bar behind Weir. It's the entire band, except for Jerry Garcia, but it doesn't stop there. 
Peter Aykroyd, Danny's younger brother, picks up a guitar and starts playing, and fairly quickly, the rest of the band begins to fill in. Joel remembers this perfect moment of seeing his brother Billy singing Louie Louie with Belushi backing him up, Danny on harmonica, and the Grateful Dead backing them up with Peter Aykroyd behind them. Joel goes on to say that later that night, Billy comes up to him and says, Uh, you seemed a little miffed earlier. Everything okay? On top of this unexpected, more incredible than he could have ever imagined night, Joel also made around 400 bucks in tips. At Aykroyd's Blues Bar, SNL crew and friends were known to be in there until the sun came up, which might have well happened this night too. But Joel added to get everyone to leave the bar because it was getting pretty late, Danny fires up his motorcycle inside the bar to push everyone out with the exhaust. I hope that this Murray moment further guides you into the after-hour spirit of anything could happen. Because it really is true, the best laid plans can always change, positive or negative, or maybe, hopefully, go way better than expected. There is always that uh, when, you, when you're going somewhere with somebody and you kind of have a different vibe about what you like to do or how you want the night to go, and you're kind of dependent on some uh, unanimous decisions and then things start going the opposite way, especially for like shows or like movies, anything where, you know, if you're a more prompt person or you're like, I just want to get there and make sure we get a good seat or your person's like, eh, it'll be fine, you know? Yeah. And then you kind of come to blows. Yeah. You never know what could happen in, in your night. Yeah. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, I just want to say before we close things out on after hours, um, it's interesting to see a director with this, large length of a career that we're still living through. Scorsese just released, you know, at 80 years old, a movie in October, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I saw. And it's just wild to see, you know, someone still making these like gigantic movies with the energy that he has, you know, as an 80 year old, you know, we see there's a lot of directors that I like a lot that, you know, you kind of see them tap out after they hit like 65, 70. And Scorsese just you know, 50 straight years is just given us like movie after movie. And, uh, I read recently that he's already like obtained a book about a shipwreck in like 1740 with like a mutiny on a bounty type situation already. Uh, DiCaprio supposedly is like interested in it. So sounds like he's just, you know, he's going to be one of those directors that's going to pass away, like probably in the middle of a movie shoot. It reminds me of, um, Robert Altman, who, you know, also directed movies well into his twilight years. And I think his like last movie had like a backup director. He was just like, Hey, in case I pass away during the shoot, <laughs> there's like someone like waiting to finish the film. I think that's, we're going to see the same thing with Scorsese, but I hope he's still as healthy and still making movies late in life as he is now. Yeah. I don't think anything could keep Scorsese's excitement and energy level downgraded at all. I think he's always going to be wanting to produce, wanting to create. And yeah, like you said, I bet he'll go out while making a film. There's a lot of things that After Hours has me thinking of after viewing it. And I think that notion of like with the Murray moment, you know, you never know what could happen with your night, the way it progresses. But another thing that always sticks out to me is the set and costume design of this film. It's just so particular and there are little idiosyncratic things about every vignette that we see. Um, specifically with the costume design, Rita Ryak did the costuming for the film and Scorsese had a lot to say about every single aspect. He was consulted with it and every character was supposed to be very distinct. It helped create the mood for the film as well. 
Some of the actors used some of their own clothes and even Rita Ryak used some of her clothes for some of the characters. But there's little things to look out for that I think become more obvious once you see the film a few times like dark colored clothes represent a sort of you know hellscape and lighter clothes uh, represent something that's not a threat and then we have like the recurring black and yellows that pop up which mean kind of watch out watch out Paul something's gonna happen these are your uh, cautionary moments but there was one thing that I noticed and I had to like stop the movie to see if I was crazy because I couldn't totally remember but Catherine O'Hara's character of Gail is wearing a jacket that has a patch on it and it's uh it says the King Kong Company and I'm like why is that so familiar and I had to pause it and look it up and that's uh that's a throwback taxi driver that is on Travis Bickle's um, attire as well. I think it's really fun to notice these little things in films, especially in a smaller movie like this that doesn't get the recognition um, that it deserves. And um, hopefully podcasts like this talking about it and a new re-release Criterion edition of it gets uh, people talking about it more. Yeah. And they're not paying us to say this, but I really do think it's a great Criterion release. It is, yeah. A great transfer and some good behind-the-scenes stuff. And, yeah, I love that when movies um, are getting, like, the second life with a lot of the uh, boutique Blu-ray and 4K releases. It's so nice when you see a movie that's been... The same thing with Something Wild, um, a re-release of it, of a movie that you feel like has been forgotten or that you've never heard of or never seen. It's so nice that they're being resurrected. Absolutely. We'll close it out there on after hours. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do have one more episode before we round out 2023. Speaking of resurrection. Yeah. And this is a well-known movie. We uh, are going with probably one of the most acclaimed and well-known uh, scary movies of all time, and that is William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Uh, it's also going to be a slight tribute episode to the late William Friedkin, who passed away not too long ago. And that'll round out our 2023. And we're going to take a slight hiatus after that's over um, to kind of recharge. And we have plenty of stuff that's going to come out in 2024. I'm already excited about some of the movies you oh, and I yeah. have been talking about. Yeah. Um, but we will. There will be a slight hiatus. So we'll, after we release The Exorcist in early December, uh, we won't be back till Valentine's Day weekend. But we'll have something special for that episode. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson, and I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. <laughs>